What a great day it has been this morning. I'm glad you're part of it. We're going to be in Ephesians 6 in just a minute if you want to go ahead and turn there as we get warmed up. Uh, man, what a fitting day uh, for baptism, the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus, and I'm glad that you're here to be a part of this day with us. Uh, we are in Ephesians uh, 6, and uh, just start with a, with a confession. Um, it uh, never ceases to surprise me as I'm working on a sermon series and laying out the, the scriptures we'll be working on, and then I look at holidays like Easter and Mother's Day, and, and I'm, I'm always second-guessing the Lord. On, are you sure this is the right day? I mean, if it's Mother's Day, it needs to be a passage about women. If it's Father's Day, it needs to be about right, Father's Day. And so as we laid out this sermon series, we're wrapping up, by the way, uh, the book of Ephesians after 16 weeks today. And uh, today is a, is a conversation about spiritual battle. And when I first looked at that in uh, according to the calendar, I thought, well, that's a strange day for Easter to be talking about spiritual battle and, and the Lord in his, in his gentleness as he always does and says, what better day to talk about the struggle that we have, the battle we face every day than to talk about that on the day that I displayed my power and victory over it all. And so this is a fitting day to talk about our spiritual battle. Now, we're going to start in Ephesians 6 in just a minute, but just a couple things about the resurrection from a personal note for me. Um, usually when we approach Easter Sunday and we're thinking about the resurrection, we, uh, we struggle with thoughts about, are we sure it really happened? We think through the scenario. Um, is this really something that took place? And, uh, and many have, uh, have brought their questions to the resurrection. For me this year, though, it was less about the reality of the resurrection and more about the why that we needed the resurrection. And so I just want to start there for just a moment. Why did we need a resurrection? You know, without the resurrection, really it was just an insurrection. Say that right? It was really just a rebellion, a sense that a religious leader rose up and caused a following. The resurrection is what sets Jesus apart from other religious leaders, those who would maybe lead a rebellion or start a new religion, Jesus resurrecting from the grave was the stamp of God's approval. Now, why we need the resurrection? One, to start with, it solidifies his identity, right? At that point, he's no longer just a religious leader, a rabbi, a teacher, a religious leader. He is now displaying that he has power over this life. He's doing what no man has ever been able to do before by overcoming death. And so it's in the resurrection that we understand fully what he said to his disciples when Peter proclaimed, you are the son of the living God. And he said, Peter, you didn't come up with that on your own, but my father revealed that to you. And so in the resurrection, we see a solidification of Jesus' identity as not merely man, but truly the son of the living God. We also see in the resurrection, a triumph of victory. Jesus defeated what no man was able to defeat before the battle of sin and death. The struggle that you face every day as a human being is the same struggle that every human being has faced since the fall in the garden. And we've made numerous attempts. I'm sure the story of your life displays numerous attempts to overcome these things on our own strength, to overcome sin, to overcome the power of death. And Jesus displayed a victory over it all that allows us to now stand. But I'll end with this thought I had this week. Why the resurrection? Because we needed something powerful and radical to change who we are. 
If you think about the power of man displayed on earth, we're really good at building tall towers and long bridges, at putting planes in the sky and for the most part keeping them there. Satellites orbiting the earth, reaching out into the galaxy. These are the displays of our power. But the two things that we have no power over, one being sin. We know this on a collective level. If you study cultures and history and no culture ever has been without sin. But we know this personally, don't we? We know the very real battle of trying to overcome sin. And not only that, the shame and guilt that shackle us because of our past. And so why do we need the resurrection? Because we need a power outside of ourselves. Now, in Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10, we'll read this in just a moment, Paul is going to shift our mindset and end his letter to the church in Ephesus by talking about the very real, present, spiritual battle that we all face out there. And he begins with these words in verse 10. Finally, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you might be, may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore. Having fastened the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation, the sword of of the spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplications for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Now, this is how Paul ends his letter to the church in Ephesus. And I love where he begins. Verse 10 says, finally. So after having said everything that I've said in this letter through chapter six, verse nine, finally, therefore, here it is, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. If you've you've never sat down and read um, the letter to the to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians, in one sitting, I encourage you to to do so. As we spent 16 weeks moving through the the letter in here on Sunday mornings, something caught my attention. Uh, As we left off in chapter 1 and verse 14, I really feel like Paul spends the remainder of the, the body of the letter explaining what he's already said, getting us ready to hear verse 10. It's almost as if he could have went from chapter 114 to 610 where we just started and said, this is the point. Let me just read for you what what I mean here. 
So in chapter one, what Paul does first, starting in verse three, is he lays out the spiritual blessings in past tense form that we already have. And he covers the spiritual blessings completely that are already ours. And then, he, and then from verse 14, if you just go right to straight to 610, he says, finally, or therefore, stand strong. Now, let me just show you what, what I believe is, is being said here. So if we go back to chapter one, I'm not gonna read all the verses, but I'm gonna read excerpts, phrases from what Paul says as he describes our spiritual blessing in Christ. So it begins with these words, that uh, he chose us in him, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons. He has blessed us in the beloved. Hear the past tense. In him, we have redemption, the forgiveness of our trespasses, which he lavished upon us. And in him, we have obtained an inheritance. Verse 13 of chapter one. In him, you also. When you heard the word of, the, of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, which is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory and then just go right to 610. So therefore, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Because all of this is true Therefore, stand firm in what is already yours. And everything that takes place between 114 and, and 610 is Paul just explaining all of that, going over the theology of the gospel, explaining in practical ways how that plays out as a church and in our families. He talks about marriage, parenting, workplace. All that to explain these spiritual blessings that we have to say to us, to the church, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of whose might? His might. Now, there's something beautiful about verse 10 that I love. Paul has already explained to us in the letter where this strength comes from and where this power is rooted. So if we continue in chapter one reading after verse 14, we get into verse 16. And, and after that, Paul begins praying for the church. And he prays that their eyes, the eyes of their heart would be enlightened, that they would know some things. So we'll just look at that. Starting in verse 18, he says, this is his prayer for the church. So since these blessings are true, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know three things. First thing is, what is the hope to which he has called you? Second thing is, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? This is where I want us to key in, verse 19, the third thing. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his what? Power towards us who believe. And then look at this. According to the work of his great might. Does that sound familiar? This is what Paul is telling us at the end of the letter to stand firm in. Okay? Right here. Verse 20, this is the expression of the power of his might. Verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he did what? When he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And then this beautiful display of the authority of Christ. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Above every name that is named. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. As Paul is saying, why the resurrection? 
Why this powerful display of who God is? Because you and I need it. And that's what Paul was praying the church would be awakened to, to understand the power it took to raise Jesus from the dead, that that same power is at work in us. The same power is at work in you and I. And so Paul says what? That's what I want you to stand firm in, the resurrection of Jesus. Now, he's going to go on in verse 11. He's going to give us two more things to do. So, so he says, first thing he says is what? Be strong. The next thing he says is put on the armor of God, and he's going to end with take up the armor of God. So two more things to do in this battle. I'm going to read these three verses, and we'll talk about it. Starting in verse 11, he says, put on the armor of who? God, again, put on something that you didn't come up with yourself, something God provides. Put on the armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Doesn't mix words. Doesn't want us just to think that evil is just some cosmic awareness or right power out there. He calls the devil by name. He wants us to understand you have a very real and present enemy. And then look at what he says. So he describes our enemy. He says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, then the next verse begins with stand firm. Now, this is a, this is a beautiful um, call. I want to put out, point out two things first. We're told to put on something and to take up something. And we know from this passage, you've been around church, he's talking about the armor of God. And I think historically, uh, when we read this passage, uh, we tend to, to get quickly to the armor of God. We like that part, right? There's this beautiful symbolism, and we get a description of what we're to, to take up and to put on, and some beautiful things come out of here. But if we build that understanding, if we begin to put on and, and to take up things, not understanding the firm foundation that Paul is laying, we'll completely miss it, and we'll fail in battle. So starting in the beginning, he says, be strong in, in what? In the Lord and in the power of his might. So something about our battle, right, is not about what we bring to the table, our strength and power, but his. But now he's calling us to action, right? Put on and take up something. And even in doing so, he's saying, but only put on and take up that which God has already provided. Now, I, I, this middle section, I really appreciate God speaking this to the Apostle Paul. It counsels me often. Verse 12 counsels me in marriage when we get into those moments of uh, what I'll call robust dialogue. Other people call them arguments, but we don't argue in our house. We just, uh, we, get a little, we get a little heated and tense at moments. Um, when, uh, when we're parenting and we get in those moments where it seems like nothing is working and we're out of patience, we're out of energy, we're, out of, we're at our wits end, we're uh, kind of like the song we sang earlier, we're, we're coming unraveled. <laughs> right? The parenting moments uh, in my relationships with other people, even my brothers and sisters in Christ, when we get into a butting of the heads or, or a tense moment in a conversation, um, I, I have those. Maybe you do as well. It's this verse that counsels me and reminds me of what is true. Let me read it again. 
For we do not wrestle against what? Flesh and blood. You see, my temptation, and I believe your temptation, is what? To believe that the battle is against flesh and blood. You know how I know? Because I, I listen to myself and I listen to you. Can you imagine, um, especially married folk, if there were just video clips of our robust dialogues? If we could just sit and watch the, the post-game reels, and I'd be like, oh, man, that was good. i got to remember that one. And we'll think about, oh, I should have said this. And we, but we're tempted, what, to think that it's a battle with flesh and blood. Even, even in parenting, right, we feel like it's us against them sometimes. And have you been to that moment? You're like, by God, I'm going to win this battle. If I have to hang you up by your toes in the cloth, don't do this, by the way. I'm just, we feel that way, right? By golly, you're not going to win this battle. I'm going to win. I'm the adult here. And in those moments, what are we expressing? That in that moment, we believe that the battle is against flesh and blood. How about even in our own personal struggles with sin, maybe with addiction, right? We tend to, right, default to this is in my flesh, and I need to overcome this in my flesh, but these words counsel me. And Paul reminds us, dear Christians, your battle, there is a battle, but it's not against flesh and blood. Husband and wife, he's not your enemy. Don't elbow your wife right now. Listen, she's not your enemy. It feels like it sometimes, doesn't it? The things that are said are hurtful. That's the kind of things that come from an enemy. The, kinds of, the, the things that are said are degrading, and, right? And it feels like an enemy's talking to us, and so we respond in flesh and blood, and we, we go toe-to-toe, and we step up to the battle with, with words, and we fight back. And Paul reminds us, no, 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 no. In your marriage, there is a battle, but it's not against each other. I think one of the, the most helpful things that I'm able to do in, in marriage counseling, because I, I counsel myself in this often, is to remind a married couple the battle isn't against flesh and blood. You have a battle, but it's not against each other. It feels like it right now. But if I could somehow talk you away from looking at each other eye to eye and going at each other with your words to maybe standing shoulder to shoulder and facing the battle that way. Just that, that singular shift in perspective sometimes helps so much to realize, oh, I've been saying hurtful things to you and I haven't even addressed the enemy. You see how that works? You know, even in parenting, to realize you, parents, you're not trying to, to win them against them. They're not the enemy. You're fighting a battle on their behalf, behind you, right? Now, Paul's going to call us to our battle stance in just a moment, parents, Christians, believers. But our battle is not against each other. And so we're called to put on and to take up. Now, just some practical examples of the way I see this battle, this present darkness play out culturally speaking. I'll just back up about uh, 30, 40 years and talk through a few different um, um, worldview shifts that I've noticed, maybe you've noticed. Um, going back to when I was a kid, you guys remember the, the Just Do It movement, and I'm in no way blaming Nike. They were just endorsing something culture had already endorsed. I actually blame the late 60s and early 70s. That's who I blame for this. But this idea that if it feels good, then what? Do it, right? Just abandon all sense of, 
of, of, of, of morality, all sense of, I don't care what people think about me. Um, I saw a guy in Home Depot wearing this shirt, and if it was you, I, I love you, but I, I'd like an explanation of what your shirt means. The back of the shirt in bold letters says, I don't have to apologize for anything. I don't know what it, where it came from, who made it, but he was saying something, right? What it was saying to me is basically I live by my own rules, and I don't have to apologize to anybody for anything. So when we were growing up, a lot of us who were in our 30s, we, it was the just do it movement, right? If it feels good, well, if it feels good, then just, just do it, right? Have at it, which gave way to... Uh, in the church world, um, a heavy use of pragmatism. And here's what I mean by that. If it works, then it must be right. And if you've been in church for a couple of decades, you've seen this movement, maybe even been a part of it. And so what we've said then is, if we can fill the seats, whatever we have to do to fill the seats is right. Now, I'm all for filling the seats. I want lots of folks to show up to hear the hope we have in Jesus, but not at any expense, right? And so, We've, and this isn't just the church culture, it's the work, it's the, the secular culture we live in, right? If it works, then it's therefore right. Whatever works is, right, whatever our standard or hope is, if we can achieve it, whatever means we have to go to to achieve it, it's right. We see political movements, we see um, civil rights movements take this trajectory. It doesn't matter what it costs us or right, what we have to do to get this to happen. If in the end we accomplish what we want to accomplish, then whatever means it took are right. right? You've seen this happen. Um, one of the mindsets that's, that's uh, I believe, emerging in our current culture for the next generation, so high school students, parents who have young kids, I believe this is going to be the manifestation of the same battle. It's this. If it makes sense to you, then believe it. If it makes sense, then believe it. So what's happening now, especially when it comes to spiritual matters in our culture, it's not that an idea of spirituality is dead, it's that spirituality is becoming customized. People are pulling from this religion or idea, from this one, and pulling together something that makes sense to them, and then saying, okay, I believe that whether it be primarily from Christianity and pulling some things over from, from Buddhism or from another religion to say, okay, now I've shaped something here that I can believe in because I can what? I can understand it. This is happening. Um, so you have conversations where like somebody might say, um, uh, I'm a Christian. You say, well, fantastic. Uh, do you believe everything that Jesus taught and said? Absolutely. Well, what's one of your favorite things that Jesus taught? Well, I, uh, I love when he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, and soul, and then love your neighbor as yourself. I can get on board with that. Oh, you, you like that? Absolutely. Well, what about where Jesus said, I am the truth, the way, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father but by me? Jesus said that? Yeah, Jesus said that. Oh, I don't believe that part. You see, we have these customizations of what we choose to believe, and we base it on the criteria of what makes sense to us. Now, here's, there's two dangers. Uh, I'll just hit the, the most obvious one. If you're standing amidst life's struggles, hardship, and the battle that Paul is describing here, based on your own reason and understanding, in other words, a religion you built what happens when your flesh becomes weary and your mind becomes tired? And, right, the brain that put together this thing you believe in, right, now all of a sudden is at its wit's end. What happens to your faith and what you believe in? It begins to unravel and fall apart. Because ultimately you're standing on what? Your own strength. What you came up with. What you put together. Now those are just a few manifestations, I think, in our culture that, um, that reveal 
um, the present darkness, the battle we're facing. Um, I, I really, I, I, I don't know if you know who Rich Mullins was. He was a, a songwriter, singer in the late 70s, 80s, um, before he tragically died. Uh, he, he, he wrote a song, um, really was a creed about what he believed. And I love this line that he repeats over and over and over again in, in his song. And here's, here's the line. After he expresses all that he believes to be true, he says this, I did not make it. And he says, no, it is making me. You see the difference? So we have this emerging culture of I want to make something I can believe in. And the gospel says, no, 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 no. You need something to make you, to make you new, to make you whole, to set you free, to give you new life. And you don't want to make that up on your own. It will fail you and let you down every time. This gospel that we have, we didn't make it. On the contrary, it is making us. Now, these are just examples of the battle, I believe, that Paul is describing that we face from generation to generation. Nothing new under the sun, right? Just a new way of thinking about the same old thing. Let's talk for just a second about um, what, the, what the resurrection means to us then in everyday life. We'll just go back to the examples Paul gives us. He walks through in Ephesians 5, uh, marriage, parenting, and work. Somehow, I believe all, everybody in the room has right, some connection to one of those categories. Uh, marriage, or you're a parent, or you're a children of a parent. He addresses kiddos, or you're working somewhere, or you're a boss somewhere where people work. Okay, Just, just those examples. What does the re- resurrection mean for you then in those places? So, so my wife's name is Hallie, if you're new here, that's what I'm talking to. So if Hallie and I get into um, a robust dialogue and disagreement, and we begin to exchange words that are hurtful and say things that we don't really mean, but in the moment feel good, we're engaging in this battle against the flesh. What does the resurrection mean for us then? How does it empower us to then to, to win that battle, okay? Well, something beautifully that you, um, you may have caught on to when Lyle was baptized is in the baptism we say, buried with him in his death, and raised to walk in a new life. And so in Ephesians 4, the way Paul describes this is he's, he describes it as putting off the old self and putting on the new self. That's the resurrection in us, that the, actually the old me is dead. So in that moment of heated debate, and I realize, oh wait, this isn't a battle against flesh and blood, what can I then choose to do? I can simply choose to believe what is true. Wait a second. I don't have to win the battle this way because my battle ultimately isn't against you. But what I've been trying to do here is stand up for myself. Instead, what if I just believed what is true and said the old me is dead? If the old me is buried with Christ, then you know what? I don't have to be right. Right? I don't have to convince you. The power for this marriage to work isn't based on me convincing you that my way is right. And so that the resurrection informs and empowers us in marriage to die to ourselves more and more daily. And the more we die to ourselves, so we're standing back to back, so to speak, the more we die to ourselves, the more we turn shoulder to shoulder and realize that our hope is in Christ. There's a real battle here, but we don't need to stand on our ability to argue. We need to stand on the resurrection of Jesus. Same thing is true in parenting get to those moments where you're just at your wit's end. What do you do? 
you remember that Jesus has won the battle for your children. Stand firm for them. Stand firm. Stand up for them. Rather than standing against them, stand up for them. What does that mean, parents? It means that one of the most powerful things you can do in the spiritual battle for your children is pray. Pray for your children. You've got those kiddos who are a little bit challenging and you're trying to come up with obedience strategy. How can I manipulate and modify their behavior? It's not working. I need another book. Books are helpful, but nothing compares to praying over your children, proclaiming to them what is true on their behalf. Now, we could go on and on in all areas of life. I want to point out something that that Paul does next. He then moves to, in verse 14, this armor we're to put on. And so I want want you to notice something about the armor that he describes. We'll walk through it together. He says, stand therefore, verse 14, having, it's past tense, fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances, take up shield of faith with which you can extinguish all flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And then I include verse 18, praying at all times in the spirit. So seven things that he's mentioned here were to take up and put on. Now, did you notice there was a call to action there? It seemed like a, kind of a battle call. Like, take up, put on, take this, strap it on, fasten it, put it on. I love how Paul does this. He tells us to take up, he calls us to action on the things that are already ours. So rather than this idea of I need to strap on my boots today and and put everything on tight and I need to go after the enemy today, Paul says, no, 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 no. Take up which is already yours. Put on what you already have. Your call to battle is to what? Stand firm. Did you notice how many times he says stand? Then after after having done it all, stand firm, therefore stand firm. Now look at what he calls us to. Let's just walk through the list. The first thing is what? Truth. Stand on what is true, not based on what you want to be true or what necessarily simply makes sense to you or appeals to you, but stand on what God says is true. God says that Jesus died on the cross, was buried in the grave, and in the grave, he took your sins, your guilt, and shame to the grave. Then on the third day, he resurrected from the grave, displaying his power over both, giving you through faith Forgiveness of sins and eternal hope. Life after this life. Paul says, stand on that. You you don't have to go anywhere else. Stand on what is true. What else does he call us to? He says, fasten on truth. How about righteousness? Put on the breastplate of righteousness. I love uh, love this this beautiful image we get from the story of the, the prodigal son and the loving father. Um, but it plays out true for our lives as well, that, um, that when we come to God, what he asks for, he, he says, listen, take off your, your dirty garments. Take off what you've soiled, what you've ripped, what you've torn. Take off all that is indicative of the life experience that you've had. I, I can tell by looking at your clothes where you've been. I can see it all over you. You can see it on your face. You, you're, you're, you're heavy. 
I see guilt and I see shame on you. And, and God says to you, take that off. Here, put this on. And he hands us the robe of Jesus' righteousness. And, and we don't get to modify it at all. You don't get to add to it. You don't get to sew one stitch. He says, put on the righteousness of Christ. Now, the, the early church had a, an interesting practice in baptism. I, I like to mention this because it makes me giggle. But it also displays what I believe Paul's getting to here. Um, so in the early church, towards the end of the first century and the second century, there was a known practice in baptism where they would actually baptize in the nude. Uh, yeah, you're welcome for that visual illustration in your mind. And so well, what they would do is they would have the person take off their clothes before they got into the baptism, well, symbolizing what? I'm taking off the old me, all the dirt, everything that I've accomplished and achieved, every, right, everything is just, I'm done with it. They would step in the baptismal, be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, raised to walk a new life, and they would come out into a brand new set of clothes. Now, they, they like that because it beautifully sim, uh, symbolized what the word is teaching us is true here. Now, they got rid of that practice, as you can imagine. Uh, this is where I giggle, thankfully. <laughs> right? Thankfully, we don't do that anymore. But you get the point. That when, when, when Christ enters your life, everything is made new. You don't get to put those dirty rags back on. You walk in the righteousness of Christ, not self-righteousness, right? Not this idea that I dress myself up, I fix myself up, I walk into church on Sunday, and I have it together. I'm over-exaggerating, but we do that, right? Don't we? We want everybody to think we have it together. What is it? That's self-righteousness. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a, a humble surrender of saying, I need the righteousness of Christ. And so Paul, again, calling us to battle is saying, take up that which is already yours. Just stand up and put on the righteousness of Christ. When the enemy comes to you and tries to taunt you and remind you of who you used to be and remind you of what you used to do and brings up things that invoke shame and guilt, and right? What do we do? We say, you know what? I'm not wearing those clothes anymore. I mean, I own it. I did those things, but I don't have to stand ashamed. I can stand firm in the gospel because why? I've been wrapped with the righteousness of Christ. Every stitch of the garment he provided for me. I stand on his merit and his merit alone. The gospel of peace. How about that? The story of the cross, the death, the burial, and the resurrection. Again, that's not our story. It's his story. Stand on what is already True. How about the next one, the shield of faith? Well, all right, finally, I get to do something in this battle. This is where I take up arms and I go after Satan and show him how hard and how strong I believe. And the problem is in Ephesians 2, Paul said, what about our salvation? You're saved by grace through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. What is the gift of God? The whole thing. The faith that you bring to the table. Like, I don't know how this works, but somehow God provides that. It's almost like we bring our chump change faith to the table and God says, here, I'll tell you what, let me exchange that for a better faith. I'll take this here. And he gives us a faith that leads to salvation. You see how over and over again, this battle cry is to take up that which we already have. The helmet of salvation, again, from Ephesians 2.8, we're saved by grace through faith. This is not your own doing so that nobody gets to brag. Sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Again, this is why we don't want to try to customize our faith and build something shaky that won't withstand the storms. We're going to stand on something that is eternally true. The Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, which 
Paul told us in Ephesians 1, we received, we were sealed by the Spirit the moment we heard the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, we were sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is already in those who believe. So let me, let me summarize the book of Ephesians for you in about, I don't know, 40 words. Just direct quotes. I'm gonna do this twice, by the way, so get ready. I'm gonna do this, and I'm gonna do it again at the end. I'm gonna put together... What God has said in Ephesians 1, Ephesians 4, and then Ephesians 6, so that you and I can hear this call to stand up upon that which is already ours in Christ. So here's where Paul begins again in chapter 1. This is what God has already done for you and done in you. God has already chose you in him that you should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined you for adoption as sons or daughters, he has blessed you in the beloved. In him you have redemption, the forgiveness of your sins, which he lavished upon you. And in him you have obtained an inheritance. You have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Therefore, put off your old self and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And be strong in the strength of his might. There's chapter 6. Put on the whole armor of God. Take up the whole armor of God. And having done all to stand firm, stand. That's what Paul is saying in the letter to the church in Ephesus. And what I believe he's saying to you today. Stand firm in what is already true for you. Now what does that mean then for those who aren't Christians? Take just a moment. I want you to know this, that fighting the spiritual battle for you begins not in resisting temptation. The battle for you begins in hearing the gospel and believing it. If you're here today and, and for the first time or for the hundredth time, through the songs we sang, through the baptism, through the teaching of God's word, you've heard the gospel story that Jesus died on a cross for your sins. He took them to the grave and on the third day he resurrected if you've heard that for the first time or the hundredth time today, okay, you're one step away from becoming a Christian. What is there left to do? What did Paul say? Believe it. Well, that's just too simple. Yeah. He does all the work. And he's calling you to the edge of your seats to say, this is the gospel. It's yours for the taking right now. What do I need to do? Believe. Believe that Jesus is who he said he was, the son of the living God. Believe that he died for your sins and rose from the grave. The only thing you have left to do is to trust him and him alone for your salvation. In that moment, the old you is buried with Christ. The new you is raised to walk. Baptism doesn't make it happen. That's just a symbolism of what has already happened. And God gives you freely new life. So for those of you here today and and maybe you're contemplating, I don't know if I'm a Christian or not. The question I would ask you is, do you trust in Jesus and Jesus alone for your salvation? Here, one more time, the words of Paul from Ephesians 1. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed it, believed in him, here's what happens. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of your inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. That's it. You have today simply to believe. 
Now, if you're here today and you are a Christian, what does this mean for us who um, have been Christians for a week, a month, years, a decade, five decades? For those who know Christ, this is a reminder to stand upon that which is already yours. What God has already done in you and for you rather than what you can do for yourself. And we need that reminder daily. We do. So let me, let me just read once again, and I changed the words up a little bit for this to be more personal for you. What is one of the most powerful things you can do in the midst of temptation and struggle and spiritual battle? I believe to stand firm what was, what, on what is true and remind the enemy of what has already been accomplished on your behalf and has been accomplished in you. Fantastic counsel from God's word to stand against the enemy and say these words, God chose me in Christ. So when the enemy comes in and says, God doesn't love you. God wouldn't want to be around you. He's embarrassed of people like you. God hangs out with church folk who wear, you know, dress it up kind of people. When the enemy tempts you with that, what do you say? It's not true. What's true? God chose me in Christ. He wasn't embarrassed by me. He drew near to me. He came and walked among us. God chose me in Christ that I should be holy and blameless before him. How did that happen? Well, here's how it happened. In love, he predestined me for adoption as his son or daughter. So when the enemy comes in and says, you don't belong to God, there's no way he'd want to be your father. You say what? Let me stand on what's true. I've been adopted by the most high God. And whether it feels like it right now or not, it's no less true. I'm his In love, he predestined me for adoption. He has blessed me in the beloved. In him, I have redemption, the forgiveness of my sins. The enemy comes to you and says, God will never forgive you. You did it again. You already asked for that. He's not gonna come back and forgive you again. What do you say? My, re my redemption, my forgiveness isn't based on, right, my performance or how many times I ask for forgiveness. My forgiveness is based on the redemption I have in Christ. Listen to this description, this redemption, the forgiveness of our sins, which he lavished upon us. It's the imagery of a sloppy painter who doesn't want to stay within the lines, just drenched us with God's grace. That's what's true, right? That's what's true. In him, I have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, which he lavished upon me. And in him, I have obtained an inheritance. You say to the enemy, you can't take that away from me. I didn't do it for myself. I didn't earn it. God gave that to me. And if you want that for me, you're going to take it up with him. He's the one that gave me that inheritance. I have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Therefore, I have put off my old self. And let's just be honest. At times, we do still struggle with looking like the old us, right? At times, we stand less on the resurrection of Jesus and spend more time trying to resurrect the old us that's dead, don't we? Okay? But in those moments of spiritual battle, we would we'd once again stop, drop the old self, stand on what is true. I'm dead. The old me is gone. I'm going to stand on the resurrection of Jesus. I have put off my old self and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Um, Christ followers, I, I encourage you to make Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 a constant meditation of the word of God. I do if not daily, weekly, revisiting what is true and what is already yours to receive by faith.
Now that's the spiritual battle we have. You see, our spiritual battle is won at the resurrection. At the resurrection, Jesus says, I win. Sorry, I woke some of you up. I win. In your marriage, I win. I know you feel defeated right now, but that's not true. I win, right? In your parenting, I win. In your struggle with addiction and, and previous sins and, right, the shame of your past that continues to try to grab a hold of you, you say, I win. The battle has been won on my behalf. I win because he won for me. I want to end by praying for us this morning as the worship team comes forward and our prayer partners come forward. Um, if you're here today and you have yet but to trust Jesus and Jesus alone for your salvation, I want to invite you to do that today. What better day than the day that we celebrate his resurrection to step forward and say, I believe in the risen Savior. If that's you, I want you to know we, um, our prayer partners aren't up here um, because they have to be, they wanna be. They're up here and they're ready to pray for you, to talk with you about this relationship with Jesus. And so I'm gonna encourage you to take that move today, to come up and, and grab one and say, can we go pray? I just need to talk this out or ask some questions. Um, our prayer and counseling rooms will be open. We have prayer partners at the back and at the front. All you have yet to do is believe. If you're here today and as you hear the words of Paul describing this very real present darkness that we struggle with, maybe you're coming right out of the battle zone and you, you haven't even bandaged your wounds as you walked into church this morning. Like maybe that battle between husband and wife was happening in the parking lot and then you walked in. Or that battle with addiction was this morning. And like you're, you're fresh from the battle. Maybe today would be a day that you come forward and ask a brother or sister, just pray over me. Help me to remember what is true and to stand firm on what has been accomplished for me in Christ. I'm gonna encourage you to come to one of our prayer partners and pray. Let me pray for us now and then we'll turn it over to the worship team. I tell you what, would you stand with me as we pray? In, in, in honor of your word, God, we stand. And God, we just stood to our feet symbolically, but inside of our hearts, God, we're standing once again on what is true. God, would you plant our feet on solid ground? Would you concrete us into what is true? God, would we today come to the humble realization that fighting this battle on our own strength is vain, it's futile, Would we quit fighting the battle against our spouse and against the behavior of our children and against our coworkers? And, and God, today, would we yield the battle to you and stand firm on the resurrection? God, now as we stand, would you come move among us, breathe your spirit through us, move us now, we pray in Jesus' name.